Welcome to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. I'm Jared, and it's been several months since I've recorded one of these introductions for the podcast. So thank you to my co-host, Gianluca, for stepping in. It's much appreciated. It is March of 2020, which is frankly frightening. I hope your New Year's resolutions are going better than mine. Well, anyway, on this episode of Bit of a Tangent, Jean-Luca and I discuss the emerging field of self-supervised or semi-supervised machine learning. This is an immensely exciting and active area of machine learning and AI research, and it's probably one which most people might not have even heard about before. So, We build up to the intuition for this topic by distinguishing between supervised and unsupervised learning. We discuss autoencoders and dimensionality reduction, and we actually end up exploring in real time how these techniques could be used in a quantified self project. This is something that Jean-Luc is particularly passionate about, and I think you'll hear that in the interview where he sort of muses about how some of these techniques could be used on his N of 1 sleep quality data set. The episode culminates in a fairly detailed discussion of the contrastive predictive coding, or CPC model, and how this model allows us to learn about the structure of the world, the structure of, in this case, natural images, without tons of labeled training data, a problem which machine learning, as I'm sure you'll hear in the episode, really struggles with. So this one was a lot of fun, and it was certainly an exercise in realizing just how much more there is to learn, at least for me personally. Uh, It's always really easy to see the gaping holes in your knowledge of something when you are trying to explain it to someone else. So I hope that you enjoy going on that journey with me. And with that, enjoy the episode of Bit of a Tangent. Right. All right, so... Potential topics what the fuck for today. Are we going to talk about. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I was actually thinking when I was pouring this glass of wine. I was thinking we just need to have a. I need to have more bad shit happen in my life so that I can buy another bottle of wine or potentially whiskey next time. I'm thinking, frankly, um, that could be good. And just sit here and chat shit to you and drink it. That that went really well. I enjoyed that. That was very fun. <laughs> Yeah, man. I think it would be definitely would be cool to do another maybe a yeah, drunk episode. <laughs> yeah, Tim Ferriss inspiration could be, could be fun. But I was thinking, but as I was saying, I think yeah. some possible topics um, we can talk about. Uh, maybe some of the stuff that Eric Weinstein's doing with his podcast, just because it's been a mind blow recently. We could talk a little bit about um, this self supervised learning stuff that i did my final project for that um summer school in 
obviously not an expert, but like the, the, the general idea is something we've actually discussed before when me, you and Tom met up mm. and like had a discussion of different like directions in AI research that are interesting. And like this whole self, yep. self supervised bootstrapping thing is super cool to me. Um, totally. Yeah. That'd be so, really cool. That's also yeah. something I'm interested in because I, I might be looking into some of that for my, um, for my project as well. So yeah, I was thinking that is be small topic. data. Um, so it'll be yeah um, this uh this essay that i'm writing at the moment is uh, the, the working title is um artificial inadequacy why humanity is probably fucked um <laughs> and i'm hoping i'm hoping i can adapt some of the the body of it into a, a less wrong post at some point but the 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 core sort of thesis of it is actually that there's the control problem in AI and that will help address a lot of AI risk. Um, but fundamentally that is nothing without good coordination, um, for human institutions and systems, because you can have, you can have solved AI alignment, but if no one, if, if not everyone implements the solution, then you still fucked. You still live in the world where people can make nuclear weapons in the microwave. Well, I mean, you are sneaking in the assumption there that like AI is is doable by one person or a small group. Yes. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah. So 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 if we if we go into it, I, I've 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 got a a more uh, con, um, controlled flow of of argumentation. But anyways, the 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 core point being that it's this this problem of coordination sort of sort of overrules so i don't know if we if we speak about this I'll, I'll i'll go and cover the sort of inferential steps a bit a bit more um in a bit more detail but the, the sort of key point is that i almost see there's there's this there's this pattern right so fundamentally the control problem is almost entirely subsumed by the coordination problem or maybe entirely uh subsumed and so what what we really want to be working on i think is a generalizable solution to the coordination problem because if we can solve control but not coordination, it might not be very useful um, because then we're still at risk of various things. And if we can, but if we can, if we can generalizably solve coordination, not only can we then solve control and in general mitigate our risks, we can also deal with all the other kinds of existential threats that humanity faces because of our inability to, to coordinate at scale, like man-made climate change, um bioterrorism those kind of things so that could be something to discuss although it may be better for another episode where we give some more background on game theory and maybe talk about um the quadratic voting and all those kinds of topics yeah okay well i definitely agree that the control problem is a sort of sub problem or it's it's kind of a special case of the coordination problem i think i think that yeah if you can just view us as having some ends, like we're trying to get this AI to, to cooperate with us, which is just, mm. you know, the coordination problem as we've talked about so many times on the show. And I think it kind of makes sense that it's such an overarching theme that we keep coming back to because I think both of us would love to see that as a problem that gets solved or at least that we have better mechanisms of, of dealing with. As for, I don't know, I just feel, uh, I mean, whenever I think about the damn problem, I just feel helpless though. Yeah, that's, I'm, honestly, I keep getting to the stage where I increasingly value how important 
coordination is and also increasingly find how it just is never achieved. Like everyone seems to just default to, oh, regulation, but that deciding to regulate and determining what to regulate and how and how you'll enforce it is a whole other coordination problem. So you're just, you're just shifting the problem one rung up the ladder, right? So it's, it's like saying, I'm going to clean up my spilled coffee by throwing some spilled tea on it. Like you're solving the problem by just moving the problem somewhere else. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I can only identify like two cases where coordination gets bypassed. It's not solved. It's bypassed. The one is by having some kind of player, some single player, some single entity who's above the whole game and outside of the game and can just top down regulate it. So like in a monarchy. Um, and the other case is, with people with individual agents in certain games foregoing their own best strategy in term in, in order to serve some greater good right so like when you see journalists go to jail or get executed because they expose some governmental secrets that are to do with um abuses of power or things like that or they're foregoing their own best interest in service of some greater good that is that is cheating the game by breaking the nash equilibrium but I don't think that works at scale. It's it's an act of martyrdom. Maybe from what you're saying there, there's a case in which maybe the control problem isn't actually a sub-problem of coordination. If you view mm. it as human coordination could be solved, I mean, possibly by some, some, some form of AI, right? Which could be this mm. external, I mean, I think in the prisoner's dilemma you just call it like the mob boss right the person who can yeah, yeah enforce exactly. some kind of outcome and in an ideal world that's the form regulation would would take it would it would act as that outside of the game entity but regulation has to come from somewhere and that's where the coordination issues come back in so yeah i think i think i see where you're going but finish your idea yeah so i mean i guess we could solve maybe many of our coordination problems internal to human society by mm. making an AI sort of this non-human external entity. But then you have the larger problem, which is that creating mm. an AI that will help us with our coordination problems is a control problem. So I guess right. what I'm really doing here is just figuring out how these two problems relate, not so much offering anything useful about them. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting idea. I think like one of the interesting approaches i've seen to solving control is to is to have these kind of uh systems whereby a large part of the problem of control is just blind function optimizers doing their thing effectively and that thing is generally never um, aligned with what the actual interests or goals are and so there's this idea of like almost learning those values in a dynamic way where the AI is never really sure of what it is that you want. And so it's always reluctant to do too extreme a thing because it's not entirely sure that it's correctly estimated what your values are. So there's like, um, what's the system called? I think it's, it's called like reverse cooperative reinforcement learning where you've essentially got like AIs in a, this game with humans and, they're constantly sort of giving feedback. So the AI is like estimating what it thinks the human wants, doing some things towards that goal, and then responding to the sort of loss that comes from the human rating, how much they approve or disapprove of that action. Hmm. And so 
there are some interesting things like that where you can almost learn human values as like some complex state space or something like that. And so it, it could be an interesting one, but so you were almost saying like, yeah, you could, you could instead reframe it as control dominates the coordination problem because you could use AI to solve coordination for every case other than control. And then we just would need a solution to control. Um, and then the question is just like, which one is making more assumptions? Um, because let's say you can't solve co uh, coordination in a generalizable way. Like let's say we find some proof that that's mathematically impossible. Well, then the other ones are only hope, but yeah, until we have more data on it anyway. And I think the fact that only like a few dozen people are actually working on this problem or these sets of problems seriously in the whole world is kind of scary when you consider that like maybe millions of people are working on AI development in various forms. Yeah. Although I would be surprised if those millions of people are really working on sort of general AI, I think. So that's my other thing is that I don't think you need general AI to have. You don't think you need general AI to have this problem. One of, one of the arguments I make in, in this article is that you don't need uh, general intelligence to have the really negative side effects that come from AI like you you like you can you can paperclip the situation with a pretty narrow AI it just has to have like some function and be able to do different kinds of things in different combinations in order to try and achieve that function but I, I think maybe what uh, what I'd ideally like to do is sort of finish this in its assignment form that sort of checks all the boxes for the assignment and submit that but then rework some of the core arguments um into a maybe less wrong post otherwise just a blog post of some kind and then um maybe get your get your feedback on that and then we 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 build it into an, an episode topic from there but um but yeah and so then maybe in the meantime we should chat about uh, some of the stuff that you've been working on and the uh i forget the term you used for it but the the sort of data augmentation bootstrapping type methods that could be some interesting Maybe we can motivate maybe the general distinction between supervised and unsupervised learning, and then this sort of weird hybrid category of self of self supervised learning. I can't say that for some reason. It's just in the realm of things I can't pronounce. Um, <laughs> that's fine. That's that's what the wonder of editing magic is for. Yeah, if I sound coherent, yeah, you're, you're self supervising too much. <laughs> and we can motivate why this is an interesting and, and useful way to do machine learning. And then we can talk about some of the specific mm. techniques. And the one that I have a little bit, and I mean a little bit more experience is because I sort of worked on the, one of the newer ones in this last week of the summer school. And it was just really, really interesting. And and the, the best part about it is that at least in my head, it's fairly explainable, like there are lots okay. of things which are not explainable without a good YouTube video or a lot of skill, but but this one is fairly amenable to just imagination and good audio descriptions. Let's do it. Yeah. So, I mean, why don't you give me just the basics of like supervised versus unsupervised learning, and then we'll mm. place this idea of self-supervision self into context. Sounds good. So I think, I think maybe a, a nice way to do this is to gives sort of the the simplest maybe oversimplified version of an explanation and then add the complexity in right because then there's a there's a good tangible grounding that you can work with so supervised learning is a 
means of machine learning where you have a whole bunch of data and it's labeled with some kind of field that you care about, right? So let us say, um, let's go, let's for, go for a canonical example here. So imagine you have a massive data set of millions of pictures of cats and dogs, and you want to train a machine learning system to be able to tell if there's a dog in a picture or a cat in a picture when it sees a picture. Um, so what you do is you have this gigantic data set, and then you have to go and label the images in the data set with the tag cat or with the tag dog so that you have that information to train the network on because there's no way to inherently like imbue it with that information in this paradigm. So you've got all of these millions of pictures of cats and dogs. And most of the time it involves getting people to go and manually label them. So someone's got some computer program open that flashes a picture and they have to click is a cat is a dog or, or some other such labeling system like that. So you go and hand label it and or you maybe scrape the data from from people's social media or, or whatever you might do from publicly available images that have tags on them already but mostly these tags well, they all had to come from humans at some point right so then you've got this data set and it's got this labeled feature this field that is what type of animal the thing is in this case it's either cat or it's dog and then what you do is you repeatedly show your information processing system so let's say a, a deep learning network these images and you show each image with its associated label and you start building up these statistical associations between the two and you do this for thousands or maybe millions of iterations and then after that you give it images with no labels and you see if it can correctly label them. So you give it a picture of a cat that it's never seen before, and you see if it can correctly identify it as a cat, even if you haven't obviously given it that label. So that's supervised learning. The supervision comes in the sense of you've given it the syllabus to learn from, this data set of labeled data right. that you can then say, this is the thing we care about, and this is what the right answers are. And then it just sort of learns it by kind of brute force. Do you want to say more maybe about just this basic idea of training? So running some image through, getting a prediction, and then this idea of using backprop to make your predictions go more in the right direction almost. Yeah, so I, I think so, so how the learning happens is obviously different depending on what kind of system you're using. So predominantly, at least in the in the example I've given of dogs and cats, you're going to be using something like a convolutional neural network, right? Which is a deep learning neural network. And so the learning there happens through backpropagation. You, you look at, you, you, you quantify how wrong the prediction was, and then you use that information to update the parameters in this network so that in future it would be closer to the correct prediction. But for instance, this, the, the same paradigm applies when you're doing like a linear regression model, you know, which is predates deep learning by, you know, decades. Uh, a linear regression model is doing the same thing. It's just not doing it with backpropagation. So, so the learning can be anything there. But for most interesting problems that are being tackled today in, in, in interesting ways, it's with deep networks. And those pretty much exclusively train with some version of backpropagation. Um, I, I don't, does that is that getting at what you were what you that's, were? That's ideal. So now, what about 
when people talk about unsupervised machine learning techniques, it's definitely something that you've had lots more experience with than I have. I've done mostly uh, supervised stuff. So what's the general idea there? Obviously, people can intuitively hear from the name that somehow it's got to be quote unquote learning by itself. But what does that usually look like? And what are the main algorithms that do that? Yeah, so so this is a really interesting one. And obviously, as you can hear, there's a difference between supervised and unsupervised learning is, well, now you suddenly don't have those labels anymore. So, okay, well, how the hell does the system manage to do anything useful if we can't tell it what we care about it doing and and that's the the main challenge of unsupervised learning um so maybe a, a nice example here would be you give it a whole bunch of images and cats and dogs and they've got no labels because we just found these images by scraping from the web and we couldn't be bothered to go and label them and we're like well let's see if it can figure out how to tell the difference between these two things. It might not know that we call them cat and dog, um, but that's fine. Can it just tell the difference between these two clumps of things? So then what you would do is you would have it analyze sort of the properties of the data. And by comparing kinds of values, you would do something like clustering, right? So if, if you imagine some kind of uh, like scatter plot with two clusters of dots that are sort of grouped independently that you could draw a line between, right? They're, they're kind of like separable clusters. That's the, that's the kind of thing you're going for. So if, if we're trying to get it to tell the difference between the cat and dog images, we'd, we'd hope for, like, say, at least two clusters there um, that, that it was identifying differences. And maybe those are things to do with, you know, dogs on more generally certain kinds of colors and textures and it might pick up on properties like that in the data it's 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 generally not the kind of thing you achieve with with um images it, it would be really hard to do it with images i think and, and you need some pretty bespoke methods for that is that because just the dimensionality is too high or because right, like the, the dimensionality of the image is so high to draw that boundary is really difficult so you need this kind of supervised deep learning approach or, or is there another reason yeah, you probably get a whole bunch of things like vanishing gradients and, and issues like that, which uh, CNNs that we spoke about in supervised learning uh, can address really well because of the ways they're structured. Um, so, I mean, you could combine the two. You could take like a pre-trained uh, convolutional neural network and then use the output sort of features from that to do unsupervised learning. But we, we're getting into the, the complexity of this here. Um, so, so. Often this takes the form, like one that people might have heard of is principal component analysis, Yeah, uh, PCA. So this is a form of unsupervised learning. Um, and it's, it's, it's really useful. It, it's, I kind of think of it as the linear regression of unsupervised learning, right? So what linear regression is to supervised learning, PCA is to unsupervised learning. It's like the more old school statistical technique. And essentially what, what the, the term that gets thrown around with unsupervised learning is often dimensionality reduction. Right. And, and we've touched on this before, like back in, I think, like episode two or three. But essentially, every, imagine you've got a massive spreadsheet, right? That represents your data set. Just useful to think about it like that. Every column that you have is called a feature, or, or every column that you have is called a feature. And each of those features can be thought of as a dimension in some multi dimensional scatter plot, right? So if you just have, one 
or if you have just have two columns of, of values, then you can imagine that being X and Y on a two-dimensional scatter plot, right? And then you can you can see how you might get clusters there. But traditionally, you're going to have, you know, dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of these columns, these features. Um, so in the case of images, every single pixel is a feature, right? Or maybe even three features, depending on how you've encoded it, right? And so with with modern image resolutions, that's a lot of features. And that's where the, the, the difficulty can come in. But for a lot of problems, you've got maybe a hundred or a thousand features, and you want to condense these into these new imaginary features that encode all the variants, right? Because to, to create clusters of things, what you want to do is you want to find some way of representing them that maximizes the dissimilarities and minimizes the similarities. So the things that are, are consistent properties of a cluster will be close, closely, will be closely spaced together and the differences will be spread out as much as possible. So you might take something that's came from a spreadsheet with a hundred columns and through these techniques collapse it into three or two columns, at least if you're going to be inspecting it visually because humans can't really work with four dimensional or higher spaces. Right. So the, the point I was getting at, um, is that so unsupervised learning is a way of finding patterns in your data without having to have explicit labels that you've gone and put on there. It's a way of finding properties without telling the algorithm what's important. And it's very useful because A, you don't have to label things. B, you might not want to enforce labels on things. Like you might not know what you want to label things as. There might be no idea like cat or dog that neatly combines all of the features of something it might be some total abstract cluster and so you just want to see that uh, and and so like a prime example of this might be to uh, if you're running like an e-commerce site or you're running like a um, you're running some kind of retail chain you could collect all the data you have from the spending habits of your different customers and you could do this dimensionality reduction through some form of unsupervised learning and you might find you have like say five different clusters that come out right and these represent your five different kinds of customer and then what you can go do is you can dig into each of those clusters and start looking at samples from that cluster and finding ways of making sense of what those clusters are because the clusters make sense statistically algorithmically but they don't necessarily correspond to things that humans can label with a word right but maybe you start looking into it and you find one cluster is like you know 40 year old white men and another cluster is like um 15 year old girls of of all different ethnic backgrounds right so you you find all these different clusters and presumably there are relationships between people's age and geographic location and socioeconomic background and the things they buy and that's the pattern that you're picking up on and so that would be a, a use case that you might apply it to there. So like I said, PCA is the PCA is the linear regression equivalent of supervised learning in unsupervised learning, in my opinion. It's like the old school statistical technique that works on lower dimensions. But when you scale up the dimensionality, then you start using techniques like UMAP, like TESNY. I feel like all of these things are just named as, as acronyms. I don't think there's any exceptions. Um VAEs are, are another technique, variational autoencoders, and those are based on deep learning, and that's really, really cool, and they, they can do some awesome things. Yeah, maybe say a bit more about VAEs, because 
or even just the general idea of an autoencoder, because I think the idea of compressing down your input into the most important features almost will come in useful when we start to discuss the ideas of self, self, I will fuck it up every time, self-supervised learning. <laughs> there we go. Editing magic will have to, will have to be done. I, right. I don't think I should be edited. I should just be punished until I get it better. Gosh. You should just be punished. <laughs> We can, we're gonna yeah we're gonna label you with shame yeah and then uh, and then you'll you'll have to you have to update until you until you get your parameters correct. All right, so an order encoder is a kind of neural network that is structured. It has we would use the term architecture. It has the architecture that allows you to do dimensionality reduction using the same feed forward neural networks and the same back propagation for learning that all other neural networks use right and neural networks are really powerful for a number of reasons they have a lot of really really cool properties and they benefit especially from modern advances in data set size and computing power like there's competition when you're using small data sets and simple problems among which algorithms are best um, and a lot of the old school statistical approaches work very well but as you scale things almost always and this is why there's been such a boom almost always deep learning with the neural networks outperforms everything else. And it outperforms everything else like consistently. Like it, if you keep giving it data and computing power, it keeps getting better. It doesn't, it doesn't taper off. It doesn't, it plateaus a little, but it, but it's, it's more like a logarithmic curve, right? So this is why autoencoders are so interesting. It's because you're taking that really powerful concept that we've developed in neural networks and, and, and all the valuable properties it has and using it to do this problem of dimensionality reduction. And so what you can imagine, and I think we'll probably link to like a useful graphic or something, or listeners can can look this up, if you look at like architecture of an autoencoder, what you'll see is that it is a neural network. So you've got nodes that are connected by edges, and these these come in layers, like in every neural network. And just like many neural networks, they tend to narrow down Right, so your first layer has lots of nodes, and each layer you tend to sort of decrease the number of nodes over time. And in the case of, say, a convolutional neural network, this has some other added complexities. But this almost this funneling technique is really, really useful because it can take really high-dimensional, complex things and reduce them into much simpler representations in an abstract space. Right, and so what's really cool about autoencoders is you are finding ways to represent the same data almost with fewer numbers, right? Like that's, that's one way it, it's a horrible oversimplification to anyone who knows how these things work, but it's a good starting point to think about this. So imagine you have 10 data points, but I tell you that you can put them in my special machine called an autoencoder. It will give you out two data points that capture 95 to 99% of the same information. You could think of it like video compression. That, that's an example, right? You can take this, if, if you were to just take every frame of a video um, as, as an image, right? This is, this is why GIFs can be so large, is because they treat every frame as a, a full image independent of the previous frames, right? If you, if you were to do that, a, a video that you might watch in HD would be like a few gigabytes per minute probably, it's it's really, really large. And so the reason why we are able to do video on the web at all is because of compression. But these compression algorithms are like 
hand coded and based on heuristics and they look at like patterns and edges and things like that. But an autoencoder learns that by itself, by just being exposed to lots and lots and lots of examples. And so what you're doing is you're penalizing it for having too much loss in quality. And what that trains it to do is find a really good way of representing some data very concisely, right? And that is exactly the same fundamental problem as dimensionality reduction. You want to represent the data as accurately as possible, but in a much smaller space with much fewer features, right? So you wanted to jump in there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just worth walking that through end to end. So as you said, like you can just imagine a really trivial case here where you give your autoencoder just a list of numbers, right? You could give it the numbers one to 10, but each of them is repeated a million times. Yeah. And so now to send that through would be a relatively big file. But imagine passing that through your autoencoder. And the, the idea which you hit on there is that you constrict it in the middle. You say, I don't care that the actual list is 10 million entries long if for the simple list of numbers, but it could be pixels or whatever. I want you to find a way to represent this entire thing using 10 of them. And in this case, it's easy. So now the simplest way in this one would just be to take each number and then also maybe an instruction at the end to multiply each of them by a million or repeat each one a million times, right? But that's really powerful because by placing this bottleneck in the middle, and when you look at pictures of the actual architecture, you can literally see that the autoencoder sort of funnels down where you're asking it to find the smallest possible basis to reconstruct that input image and then it reverses that funnel back up at the output and it says okay using that representation can i now build a high fidelity reconstruction like by minimizing how much detail is lost under the constraint of having very few dimensions to work with in that representation exactly so it's almost like symmetric very often they actually are is that the way that you undo it is almost perfectly symmetric to the way that you do it at least in terms of the architecture of the network right so you have the funneling down on one end and then you have the funneling back out on the other and that's how you're able to quantify how accurate the the compression is right because you then use it to reconstruct the initial values and then you compare how those differ from the actual true values. And so you're simultaneously training the encoder and the de-encoder. Or, sorry, you're simultaneously training the encoder and the decoder. The de-encoder, yeah. Now we need to... Sorry, yeah. And that's <laughs> my self-supervised, yeah. <laughs> Train, exactly. And, and, and what's kind of cool then is at the end, you've, you've trained two networks in one, and then you can kind of just chop it off in the middle and then use both for interesting purposes. Say more about the purposes. Yeah, so I mean, there, there are lots, but the ones that often that I've often thought about or or seen used are uh, the the encoder part you're using to represent this complex data to do your dimensionality reduction and to find clustering or patterns. So you could use it instead of PCA or UMAP, and it's very useful in that regard. But the beauty is then you can then just map back up, and the extra cool thing about that is that you can just take some point on your reduced space the output of the encoder that you've never seen before and infer where that might be if it were ever to have existed right so you can kind of say if if you get two clusters let's say let's say you run this on your on your retail chain data from your spending habits of your customers so your encoder 
manages to create this two-dimensional output space. And there are three clusters of, of different kinds of customer on there. Fantastic. It's, it's identified three different types of customer. But now what's awesome is you can go and find any point on or between those two clusters and put that point into your decoder and it will show you what the properties of that customer would be, even though that customer has never been seen before, doesn't exist. Right, So you can now do these hypothetical spaces. And there's a lot of caveats when you do that because you have to like avoid things that, for instance, if you're doing like manufacturing, which is the domain I did it in, you've got to avoid things that literally defy the laws of physics. Like something can't be a thousand degrees on one end and negative, you know, 20 million degrees on the other, literally like impossible values, right? So so there are certain things that constrain that that space and the ability to walk paths along that space. But it's really, really cool because you get to it, you get to reverse it perfectly. And some methods of dimensionality reduction don't actually have that feature. You can't reliably get the same clusters out and you can't reverse it. So I think Teasney has that problem. You can't, you, it's, not, it's not a reversible process. And PCA, you can reverse it, but it's kind of a hack. You don't actually really reverse it. You just kind of brute force the input as far as I understand it and observe the outputs so it's i mean you you, uh, you can you can do it by reversing the eigenvectors okay scratch that out but teasney you can't as far as i know because everyone's like don't use teasney because it can't do that and so there are a lot of use cases for these variational autoencoders and the corresponding decoders um and i think like that space still hasn't even been explored completely pun not intended but very spontaneously but very serendipitous um, so I just want to add in one last thing that I think is useful here. And then I'll jump before, to self-supervise. Before you jump in, yeah. Um, is just that we've kind of touched on two of the major branches of machine learning. Um, and that is, or of AI really. And that is um, supervised learning, unsupervised learning. Another one that people will often hear about, and I think is worth just mentioning here and just sort of uh, flagging for later work is reinforcement learning right so this is this is again like supervised learning is different from unsupervised learning reinforcement reinforcement learning is different from both those two and reinforcement learning is what drives a lot of these really interesting advancements in like playing chess and go like all the alpha go alpha zero all of those kind of things uh, the open ai's dota playing systems all of those are based on reinforcement learning and reinforcement learning tries to emulate more how real entities learn by engaging with their environments and maybe is a better approximation of how brains learn. But I, there's way too much complexity to dig into that. But I just want to put the flag there and say that that is also another domain, another maybe branch of AI. Yeah. But it does some really cool things. But for the most part, like 90 to 95% of what gets used in industry like in you know retail or those kinds of systems is supervised learning and maybe a sprinkle of unsupervised learning here and there like most people are using supervised learning when they say they're using ml it's worth jumping in there and asking i mean in your opinion you've sort of worked in this industry a little bit Mm. i look at it and i think that the next sort of frontier of problems are going to be very amenable to people doing much more RL, the reinforcement learning side, because of this ability to look more at domains where 
you can just design some sort of reward and then and then optimize on that instead of this kind of inference-based paradigm that we see in deep learning, right? Where you're just trying to predict something, whereas reinforcement learning always feels much more like actual AI to me because you are mm. you you it's predicated upon action in some sense, right? So I just wanted to get your quick two cents on that, and then we can continue. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting advances to be made. And I think there's a lot of unexplored space in reinforcement learning and unsupervised learning still. Um, But supervised learning is probably going to be the most useful to your average business, right? Like if you've got data, which most like online services do, and you've got some money to throw at a company like Amazon or Google or maybe Microsoft, they've almost got like off the shelf supervised learning. Like the, the field is so mature in that side of things that it's almost like plug and play these days. It's like Lego. Um, and, 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 and it's obviously, you don't even need to hire anyone to do it for you. You just like sort of buy the package online and throw your data at it. And it, it does predictions. Um, and, and that's very useful and it, 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 it can lead to a lot of value to companies, to businesses, um, in, in terms of profitability. But yes, I think in terms of the, see changes in terms of the breakthroughs in terms of the paradigm shifts 100 percent. a little bit of interesting stuff still to be explored in unsupervised learning and a lot in reinforcement learning and i think of all domains reinforcement learning seems to hold the most promise for generalizable intelligence like supervised learning is very good at getting crazy good at narrow tasks like identifying objects but that is only part of intelligence right and so when the reinforcement learning comes into play, then you start getting into real AI as it's been envisioned in science fiction and popular culture for decades. So, and really cool meaty research. Yeah. So yeah, that's the stuff I'm excited to play around with. So yeah, so jump into uh, self-supervised learning here. I'm glad you can say it on the first try. (laughs) So, I mean, I think the first thing is, is, as you say, is what it is and then maybe motivating for why we need it. So, I mean, the the general idea is sort of like unsupervised learning. You're wanting to train this model that you've got based on some sort of labels that is naturally part of the data. So what you're trying to do is do a kind of pre-training where the model learns features that are actually relevant to the data. So... There's two examples that are helpful. The first one is just as to what I might mean by a natural label. So most language models that are used today have this kind of element where if you want to train it to understand human language, you don't need anyone to label your sentences. You can just give the machine a bunch of sentences and then say, cut off the last word of every one and get it to predict the next word in the sentence as it goes, right? And then the label becomes just what the actual word was, right? So, I mean, if I start saying the cat sat on the, your brain has a probabilistic prediction for what the next word is, right? Aside from the fact of preschool. And I didn't need to give you any labeled training data. If I then show you that the last word is mat, then you can update towards thinking that the words cat, sat, and mat are more likely to occur together in the future. So that's the sort of... yeah label that's naturally part of the data right so this has been Mm. in use with language modeling for a couple of years now although it's fairly new and the motivation behind this is like can we do this for more domains and the domain that i focused on was 
images because there's a lot of images out there if you think about it, right? I mean, the internet is full of them. But as you pointed out at the start, to use a lot of these, you need labeled images. And this is just time consuming to make. And especially for some sort of narrow domains in um, in deep learning, where there's not much in the way of big public data sets, it can be really difficult to do accurate, to make an accurate model with so little data. So I mean, like deep learning, I think a lot of people know by now has this really big problem with size. I mean, the, the ImageNet data set contains something like 14 million images at this point. And obviously that's now split into lots and lots and lots and lots of classes. But the point is, is to get a model which is really accurate still requires a lot of labeled training data, which you might not be able to get if, let's say, the thing that you wanted to learn to predict was something which only happens very rarely in time or where you can't afford to employ an entire team of people to label every example you've got. So what self-supervised learning might look like on images would be, if you think of a normal convolutional neural network, how if you train it fully supervised on ImageNet and you look at what features it learns and, and you can just look at what the um, the filters look like, right? You can visualize them. You sort of see that in the first few layers, it kind of learns edges. And then the next layer up, it learns combinations of those edges. And then as you go through up the network, it's got more and more complex features, right? And these features act as... Uh, mm. Or, or feature detectors in the input image, right? So it might Absolutely. fire really positively on a the edge of your face, and then there's like a nose feature which detects noses and eyes and everything else, right? And what, in the same way that a good language model could be built by learning to predict the next word in a sentence, because that means that you've learned something about the structure of language, a good self-supervised image learner would somehow learn something about edges and combinations thereof, but without this training paradigm that we use where you give it a, a lot of labeled data and then mm. it does that, if that makes sense. Right. Interesting. Very, very cool. So I'm I'm by no means <laughs> very informed on, on that branch of research. Um, one thing I do just want to sort of caveat here is to say, that people should not be confused um, between two terms that I think could be confused here. So self-supervised learning is what you're talking about now. And that shouldn't be confused with semi-supervised learning. Self-supervised learning is like a variation on supervised learning, as you've just explained, um, in that you, you, you there is still a label. It's just that you're not having to get the label from humans manually doing the work in the simplest form, right? Right. There's more complexity to it as well. But uh, semi-supervised learning is more like a variation on unsupervised learning. And that's, it's, it's, it's quite, quite a distinct thing. So I think just, just to be aware of the difference in terminology there, I think there's a very different approaches, even if I have oversimplified them for the purposes of this. You know, I mean, say more about semi-supervised learning then, uh, and I'll make sure that I'm not getting the, the terms confused in my head before I talk more about it. <laughs> oh, no. Like, I mean, I doubt you are if you've, if you've just done a project on this because you would have been you know, researching the literature and, and things like well, that. I mean, but in, um, in <laughs> So, so semi-supervised learning is um, not something that I'm – it's not something that I've 
had much experience in either but as far as i understand it what you're doing is you're you're passing in some information to show what you care about into an unsupervised learning system so it's maybe not the ideal name um so in other words you don't have to go and manually label a lot of data but you can put in hints about like things properties of that data that you might care about to assist the unsupervised learning in identifying clusters that are useful to you or in performing the kind of dimensionality reduction that aligns with what the data science team cares about researching in this particular right. problem um, so it's just ways of adding in like extra little information in a human extra information from the developers to get the algorithms to produce the kinds of results that, that they want about. right without having to label the data yeah exactly so it, it's like a variation on unsupervised learning whereas what you're speaking about sounds to me at least in the context of like language sounds to me much more like a variation on supervised learning i guess i, I can kind of see them blending into each other there's that there, there's that that gray area right where they start overlapping and i think that's where things get super interesting yeah because if you think about it so once you've trained, let's just take the language model example, right? It's it's learned something about the statistical structure of data on its own. And I guess the, the semi-supervised part of that is you've told it what you care about is the next word in the sentence. So it, it's, it's trying to learn now spatial or temporal relations. So that's kind of semi-supervised. And then the mm. reason that it becomes a kind of self-supervised uh, thing is because at the end of this, you're gonna you're going to actually give it labels on a smaller subset of data and you're going to rely on the fact that it's learned a general language model and now by giving it relatively few labels it'll also now learn to characterize or to label unseen examples well which it wouldn't have done without that self-supervised language model that it had to learn on its own now i see where the interesting gray area is between the two because you approach one from the supervised side you approach the other from the unsupervised side to some extent but they almost conceptually end up converging, at least in our interpretation of the models. And this is this is where it starts getting me really excited. Okay, so the self-supervised learning that you're talking about is almost a way of, and I'm going to throw in a term that's become almost entirely useless, bootstrapping um, your data labeling, right? Right. <laughs> and 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 the phrase is 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 totally useless because everyone loves it because it's, it describes this way you might pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Right, it's like maybe we should call it sky hooking, just to just to, to throw in some other overused phrases here. All right, so talk a little more about it then. Well, what I'll do is walk through maybe some of the previous ways that this has been done, and there's a really good blog post by Jeremy Howard on the Fast AI blog, which also does this really well. So that's definitely worth checking out awesome. because it's got links to some papers. It's got nice images. But roughly speaking, if you think of images, right, what we're trying to do is, is teach our model to understand something useful about the structure of the internal structure of images that come from our universe, our world, right? And so a really natural one might be to try and take advantage of temporal structure in your data. So this would be really easy with like a video right so if you have a video of someone taking some action previous attempts do something like take the frames then mix up the order of the frames right so you know someone's pouring some water and mix up the order so 
the frame the first frame is now the water is full but now the frame after that is someone pouring it into it and just make a model that tries to predict the correct order and mm. basically that's again trying to take it's trying to do the similar thing to what the language models are doing right because if it learns to put things in the correct order what you're assuming is that it's also learning something about the structure of the world right it has to know that first of all something about the the water being poured has to precede it filling the glass which means that you have to have this kind of internal representation of water possibly um another really interesting one that i saw was where you and again all of these techniques are basically just trying to do something so that you're forcing the model to learn something about what real images are and what 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 isn't a real image and in, in doing so it has to have this internal model of the world in some way so a really cool one is you like take your training data and half of it you apply like random distortions to you know so you could like make it fuzzy or mess up the color or blur it out and then the other half you leave normal and then you just classify you train just a prediction model and the prediction model just has to say is this a real image that wasn't distorted or is this one of the distorted ones and again that's right naturally labeled because you just know which images you distorted and again to do it like you have to know the difference between something distorted i.e unreal and what a real image from our world looks like which means you've again got some sort of feature but then i guess what this all builds up to and what like the sort of holy grail as far as i can tell in this place would be would be having like a fully generative model for your data so like i think what people dream of doing is you give in the same way where you like block off the last word in the next word in a sentence and then say predicted imagine if you could just pass the model like a, an image block out some of the pixels in that image and say reconstruct the full image right because that's mm. that's the most natural way to do this and yeah the problem with that so that would be almost the naive approach if you're just trying to fill in pixels then that doesn't really work so well and I, my intuition for why is because you're not really forcing the, the model to learn a feature you're just kind of placing pixel values so yeah. you can do it over bigger segments and the, the the ideal would be to have this generative model so instead of filling in individual pixels you're filling in like edges and lines and curves right this sort of more atomic pieces that make up mm. the world but the problem is that the image like an image is really high dimensional you know if you just cut yeah. out a few pixels a, a, you know a square the number of different values it could take is just so big that you're just trying to brute force a problem which is going to be probably intractable so basically this problem of trying to find a generative model is solved in an interesting way by the main architecture which i sort of looked into a little bit more and this is an architecture called cpc which stands for contrastive predictive coding and it's really worth uh, getting into also yes it's predictive coding or predictive processing which we still haven't talked about yet <laughs> after so many hints about it so Oh man, I think we've mentioned it more than Eliezer Yudkowsky in the last few episodes. Like, 
maybe this will be the the episode that forces us to sit down and prepare for the next episode when we do it. So so what I want everyone is listening to this right now to do is go onto Twitter. If, sign up for Twitter if you don't have it. And go onto Twitter yes. and go go to no go to Jared's profile. <laughs> the link is in the is in the show notes. <laughs> at j nearest n i think it is yeah and and just rage tweet him until he finally gives in and and sets the ball rolling for this predictive coding episode just bully him just straight up cyber bully him yep cyber bully me that's we need more <laughs> of that twitter's become too nice everyone's too soft <laughs> yeah i mean just hit me with your quick reaction on those basic ideas i think they give a really nice intuition for what we're trying to achieve with self-supervised learning yeah man that's it's super cool um so you have mentioned elements of this to me before but like there's always a, a time and a place for things when they can impact the best and i think the the bandwidth limitations on our, our video call this evening maybe obscured the fact somewhat from you but while you were talking there i did literally have my eureka face and then furiously start scribbling notes because i realized and presumably someone else has had this realization because it was like one or two inferential steps at most from what you were talking about. Um, but I had never realized it before. When you're talking about the system taking the video of someone pouring water that had been shuffled up so that the frames were out of order and trying to correctly order the frames, the idea that immediately occurred to me was that this could be a great way of dealing with small data sets which is usually the kind of thing you have in domains that i am interested in like quantified self this is instance. what i was trying to say so, at the start <laughs> yeah right so this is this is exactly okay well, but but the reason why this is interesting is so like the, the current little project that i'm focusing on is to try and predict create predictive models for my sleep data so i've got like you know many 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 nights of sleep data but you know a few hundred, not a few million, right? So you can't just throw any deep learning approach at this. Um, and then I've got some other data like exercise information, heart rate, um, alcohol, caffeine logs, those kind of things that I can then use to try and predict the sleep. And the reason I want to do this is because if you have a predictive model, then you can start reverse engineering to see what factors influence sleep and then you can do interventions. And this is where the whole quantified self individualized medicine frame space gets interesting and more to come on that soon if you want it sooner rage tweet at me but the idea that i had was what if you just did the problem by just shuffling the output like the sleep data and then you just assigned the system the task of matching the input data to the correct like you remember remember when you're a kid in school and one of the ways they could ask you questions was to have you just like match pairs of things so you get like one you get like two lists of things and you just have to like draw lines matching up which one goes with which one right like imagine that but for a kind of supervised learning problem wait so what's your input and output here I'm not sure if I... So my input is going to be like all these parameters about my daily life in in this case, right? So it's going to be like exercise, um, logs of when I had alcohol and caffeine, um, when my feeding window was, all of these kinds of things that might influence my sleep quality. The, the local weather, where I was, um, you know, time, or, or yes, current season, all, all kinds of information like that. 
And then the output data, the thing I'm trying to predict is the quality and quantity of sleep, which you compose into a single score, right? And instead of trying to just do it as a supervised learning problem where you will either overfit to your tiny data set or you just won't be able to learn any pattern because you've got too many features and too little data, one way you might do this and you would probably need some other uh, transfer learning or something to get you started perhaps, but would just be to shuffle the output data. So instead of having them as labels, you just treat it like those frames of the video that are out of order. And then what you try and do, or or, or predict the next word, right? But it's got all the options there, right? And so it's like, okay, given that I went for a run today and I drank alcohol at 4 p.m. and my last cup of coffee was at 3 p.m., which of the following nights of sleep do you think followed? Like, was it the night that I slept for two hours? Was it the night that I slept for 10 hours? Was it the night that I slept for six hours, right? And it's got to try and pick which one, but not only pick which one, it's got to try and order them for each case because you're now getting a lot more information out here because it's now ranking them in terms of probability, just like the predictive model for the next word. Isn't this, I mean, this doesn't this feel kind of just like supervised learning or am I missing something? I mean, the, the supervised like thing hasn't come in yet, right? Because it's it's the same thing as what you're doing with the with the video that has frames out of order. Is you're trying to you're trying to now figure out ordering because like the the sequencing of things is is what's interesting here. And but my point being is that you would get a an ordering, and from that ordering you could infer some kind of approximate probabilities. Right, and so suddenly, from very little data, you're getting a lot of information because now you're getting almost like it, it's become a Bayesian system instead of just being a kind of one-hot system, or, or instead of inferring your degree of belief from the uh, output value and how closely that, cor- you know, like how how I mean, with regression, you have no way of doing that. This would be a regression task, and you have no way of quantifying your degree of certainty in a simple regression system for classification you can from the from the output feature right but um but with regression you can't and so this would be a way of then taking a regression problem and turning it into kind of like a bayesian probabilistic model of like probabilistically right that's maybe the wrong framing to use but it would be a probabilistic it would represent the degree of belief that each of those uh, so maybe a way to think about it is you would have some probability mass distribution over all the possible nights of sleep. And so then you could just look at like where most of that mass is clustered. I don't know. I mean, this this literally just came to me as an interesting yeah, thing to explore. Yeah. So I'm probably talking total bullshit, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, I kind of see it. I think I think what you're trying to say is you're trying to figure out what are the possible values here and is there some sort of internal structure to how, yeah, I, I'm not seeing it fully, but maybe it's just something that I have to think about more. So, so, so the classic supervised learning would just be you, you, let's pretend you are the algorithm, you are the, the, the learning model and I am the researcher, right? Right. I have all the cards with the answers on them. And I now say to you, okay, here's some information. What do you predict? And then you say, and you, you guess something and then I show you the card that was the right answer and then you learn from the difference between the two whereas so what i'm proposing now is that you instead go i i I have all these cards and i go okay here's some information some context for you and then i lay all the cards out in front of you and i say 
order these by which ones you think are most likely the correct answer in like descending order of likeliness of likelihood rather and then by doing that i now get a sense of a what you've learned and b like if you have like the top 10 are all 6.231 hours sleep like you know and they've there's got very little variation in them then i can be like highly confident that that is an accurate prediction for those kinds of outputs but if it's like super distributed over like six and ten and three hours then i can be pretty confident that you have no clue what you're talking about so it gives me a way of adding probabilistic information to a supervised learning regression task where you're trying to like predict some value not classify things and so and 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 the ordering gives me like i'm just getting so much more information out of every prediction than i would if you were just giving me a guess as to the number how you would actually implement that, I'm not entirely sure of. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of see that. I guess because the way you structured it, like your data doesn't really have like a sort of spatial or temporal element to it, right? I mean, obviously it's, it's you know, there's like seasons and stuff, but what you're trying to predict is is a is a quality. That is one, that, that's one way I might structure the data. And they, they, another way I might structure it is as a continuous time series. See, then that would make more sense to me because you could sort of start to try and predict maybe parts of that time series. And yeah, I, I think obviously you have a much better sense for what your data looks like than I do. So I'm just not catching you here. Mm. The fundamental difference between this and what you were talking about with the video of someone pouring water is that the same three second video of someone pouring water can be chopped up into frames and shuffled in various different ways. And so you're getting that that like augmentational advantage from it, whereas like what I'm saying, there's, there's, like, there's, you can shuffle it in various ways, but it's still the same problem that it's seeing each time. But the, 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 there's like some core commonality there that I just thought was really interesting enough to like get excited and write it down. And I'm definitely going to try and explore that. Yeah, well, explore it and then tell me about it. But yeah, but the this, this self-supervised thing is super cool because of its potential to like, like you, you were speaking about with hypothetically images being a fully generative model and when it comes to very small data sets and trying to use these cutting edge machine learning techniques if you have generative models you can use very small data sets to synthesize large data sets train these massive models on the large data sets and then just fine tune them on the real data which allows you hopefully to actually create a strong robust generalizable model without overfitting yeah maybe it's a pipe dream but there's definitely that hope um, and it would be super useful so i don't know if you have any more ideas relating to that i need ideas damn it give me ideas Let me Jared. talk about what the cpc algorithm does because interestingly to try and solve this problem of having a generative model over this really high dimensional data they're actually they're they have this genius idea where they take the generative model and they just make it. So instead of having to put your problem in terms of having a generative model for those pixels, you make it into a classification problem. And that's such a clever idea. So I'll try and get at how that works. And then if I fail to do it, it's most likely because I've failed to understand what I'm actually talking about. So just quick interjection do we need to maybe explain now that we've mentioned it a few times the difference between regression and classification yeah hit that out because there's at least one person who will say thank you yeah okay um and yeah just it's, it's a useful 
useful thing to know when throwing these terms around. So when you're talking about supervised learning, there are primarily two different types of problems you can have. The first one is classification, which is like the example of classifying cats and dogs is where there are a set number of classes of outputs that are possible and you are trying to predict which one, right? And the right. cool part about that is that your networks usually give like not perfect values of, of, on their outputs. So if you are predicting cat or dog, it might give you like 0.8 cat and 0.2 dog. And some people say that you can then use that as your degree of belief if you haven't passed it through some other activation function or softmax or whatever. But with a regression problem, you are trying to pick some generally continuous value. Um, I guess it could be integers only, but mostly, yeah, some, some kind of continuous value. So you don't know. There aren't like some set fixed number of possible outputs. It's like trying to predict height or something. It, it falls on a continuum. And the way you then tell whether you were right or wrong is by comparing the difference between the true value and the predicted value. And you'll use something like uh, mean absolute error or mean squared error, which are literally what their names say, um, to try and quantify that difference. Um, whereas with classification, you literally go, was it a dog? No, or yes. And then you know how to update. So I think I think that explains it. Yeah, that's the basic intuition. All right, so back to you turning it into a classification problem. Yeah, so this is, so as a basic recap of what we're trying to do, we're trying to learn something about the structure of images, right? That's what our self-supervised task is. And we said that the problem with having a fully generative model that can do this is it's high dimensional and maybe it just won't work. And so what this paper does, and um, we'll link to the papers, they're both on archive that I sort of looked at for this they're actually like really manageable because i read them so it can't be that terrible so basically what you do is like imagine you've got an image and divide that image up into patches just little squares right and you just okay. kind of choose squares so that like every square overlaps by like half with a square next to it right and now what you do is you take each patch and you run it through a normal neural network architecture. It could be like a ResNet or I think they use the ResNet, but anything that has sort of convolutions, right? And you just set up that architecture so that the result of passing the patch through yeah. that architecture is to turn that patch, which would be, you know, sort of like a, a two-dimensional matrix. You just turn it into a very long vector, right? And that vector now obviously encodes everything in that patch. Okay. So it's like un, un, unraveling a, a sweater into a single strand of yarn. Exactly. Kind of thing. Cool. So once you've done that, then you've got one of these vectors for every patch in the image, right? So you could imagine mm -hmm. having the top row of the image encoded as, as, these, as these vectors. And then what you do is you then pass those vectors into a second network, which they mm -hmm. call the context network. And basically that network... Now, you take the output of that as being, well, the context, as in in the same way that saying the cat sat on the, is the context which you use to predict the word mat. You use these vectors that come out as the context to predict vectors below you. So 
imagine again that patch, that that image divided up into patches, right? What you're doing is you're saying like, if I've got some vector, which is now this encoded version of a patch, what you do is you say, okay, pick like at random. First of all, pick the, the vector of the patch directly beneath me. So that has to obviously have something in common with me because first of all, the patches overlap by 50%. And also, yeah. you know, like the vector that would encode your nose is going to be like quite closely related to the vector that encodes the piece of skin between your eyebrows, right? So they have their sure. spatial structure in common. So what you say is, okay, you've got this vector that here we're saying is the skin between your eyebrows. And what I want you to do is I want you to learn to predict what the vector directly beneath that will be, right? In this case, your nose. And here's the classification part, because what you say is, I'm going to just sample at random other vectors in this image. And all you have to do is tell me which is the right one. So to do that, you have to have like learned some model of like the internal structure of images. Like you have to know something about why noses come below eyebrows because you can't just Mm. return your hair. That would be like the wrong vector to return. So you, instead of having a generative model where you have to fill in pixels now, you have to just classify between different vector representations of the input image. I don't know if I've done a very good job there. It was a bit too convoluted. So, so you, these, these, this list of vectors of possible vectors, right. Become your classes for each, for each prediction. So you've got, you've got for, for, for each case, you've got this list of vectors that you had produced by doing the tiling, right? Well, that overlapping tiling. And then what you're trying to do is classify, like each one of those is, becomes a class. And what you're trying to do is predict which one it was. Where am I misunderstanding you? Yeah, sort of. So it's, it's as you say, so you've, you pick some vector, like let's say in the middle of the image at the top, right? Mm. And then you say, like your job is to now, given that, right, the, the network's job is tell me what the vector of the patch directly beneath that is and the options to pick amongst are the actual vector that is there and a couple of random ones that i i picked just so that you you can't right write. okay so it okay. becomes okay. classification gotcha, gotcha. because you're just picking amongst a limited set of options yeah and then you can you can take a loss function of this because again the label is inherent like you know which vector was actually below it exactly okay that's really really cool because the classification then is I think an easier problem a lot of the time than regression, right? Like if it had to fully generate all the values, it would be quite difficult, but it's benefiting from having some structure there. So the fact that it's just like like multiple choice is easier than open-ended questions in some sense, unless the person who sets the test is deliberately trying to trick you. And in this case, we, we kind of are, we're trying to make sure that the student knows what they're talking about without having to make them memorize whole long things, right? So we're, we're helping them to learn effectively and not just cheat. Like we don't want students that just memorize what kinds of bullshit essays to write. We want students that actually understand concepts. And it's, it's almost like we're, we're, we're creating a better test or examination um, that, that will help facilitate that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if this is not clear and that's entirely my fault, I will make sure to link in the show notes to a couple of blog posts that make it quite clear. 
to have some good like visual illustrations of this because I feel like that was what will really help solidify it. This is easier with um, a visual illustration for sure. Um, maybe I was ambitious, but like the central idea of you know you you project some patches using a, a ResNet, you make them into a vector, and then you say, mm. given some vector that's at one space in the image, can I predict which vector is directly beneath me from a set of other vectors in the image, right? And only one of those is the right one. That's That itself is fairly okay. And then the loss function is actually not super ugly, you know, like it it reads at least. And the papers that describe this do a really good job, I think, of being really like reasonably concise in, in talking about some of the intuitions behind this. Yeah, it's it it's it's augmentation for your target feature as opposed to for your input data. Yeah, so it, say it more about that thinking about that's it. a really really cool idea, and I think you've hit it on the head there. Okay, and this also just gave me a a, a, a more refined version of what I initially suggested for my project. So I'm super excited about this. All right, so so data augmentation is just ways of taking existing data that you have in your data set and modifying it in slight ways such that it's still valid data but that you just now have you can use them as separate examples so if you've got a data set of a thousand images that's not very much right let's say a thousand images of uh, human faces right so you you go and you have a thousand different people and a one photo of each of their faces and now you want to make a system that can tell them apart you're probably going to struggle because that's just not that much data and it only has one example of each person so the canonical types of things you would do there is you would go and rotate the images for starters um so you would you would do all various like rotations of them you would like zoom into parts of the images you would apply like noise over them like white noise so it looks a little bit like hazy like a static on a television you would uh, like change the color you would like hypo desaturation there's all sorts of augmentations you can do and there's libraries out there of code that you can just click you know, pretty much just, you just, just tell it what kinds of augmentation you want it to do, and it will automatically do this for you. Because the label stays the same in all of these cases. So once again, you, you, you're you not having to go and label all of these things. So you can take one photo of, uh, should we use uh, Alice and Bob in this example? Because there's the classics of computer science. You've got, you've got a photo of Alice, you've got a photo of Bob, you've got one of each of them. Now you go and you augment in these 9, 10, 15, 100 different ways. And now you have that many examples of a picture of Alice, of a picture of Bob. So your system is much more likely to learn the actual signal there because you're adding in all these extra kinds of noise, of variation, of things that could confuse it, but those help it learn to differentiate the faces better. I've never actually done it with trying to do facial identification, but I presume that would that would work. Anyway, that's image augmentation, and that's one kind of way you might augment data. It's the most uh, tangible way, right? So it makes for a good example. That's augmenting your input data, right? The, the data that you give to the model, right? But what we're talking about in these contrastive predictive coding systems is kind of like augmenting your label, augmenting the target feature, right? The thing that you're having the model predict as opposed to the thing it's learning to predict from. And so instead of just giving one label every time you're giving options, some of which are, one of which is the correct one, and we know that obviously, and some are other ones that come from legitimate parts of the data. Maybe you throw in some ones there that are just completely randomly generated, who knows, but it's a way of creating 
augmentations of the label of the target and thereby improving the quality of your learning, which I think is a really, really cool idea. And the refinement to my initial suggestion on the uh, sleep model is instead of having it do the ordering, uh, what you would just do is for every day that I have like data for of of input things like exercise and caffeine and alcohol and what whatnot, you would then show it like three or four or ten or fifteen options of randomly selected nights of sleep, as well as the actual one that was the correct night of sleep. So the others are all valid nights of sleep just not the ones that correspond to that day in the real data set. And then you would have it predict which one was the correct, you're turning it into a classification problem. And the beauty there is I can still get, I mean, there you're getting the, the, the weights, the strength of its outputs for each of those classes becomes the approximation of its degree of confidence. And you can use that as a signal to see how well it's learning. Um, and I think that gives more information because also you can look at the qualities of those nights of sleep. You could also sample them in a intelligent way as opposed to randomly sampling. So you could sample according to some kind of normal distribution. So if your target, the true, like the true label is the mean of your distribution, you would then sample around that so that you have a lot that look similar to it and a few that look very different and maybe that makes it more challenging and that creates a better model Um, you could also maybe synthesize new ones from the same distribution something like that so that that i think could be a really interesting space to explore which is not exactly like these um uh, cpc systems but it, it has that similar feature of augmenting the target which i think is a really interesting idea yeah, I think it's worth exploring that. And I mean, I hope that when you Definitely. start working on that, you come back and tell us a bit about it. Yeah, I'm going to check out those papers that you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think what we do is I'll just mention sort of like the kind of results that this is getting, and then we'll start to wrap up. Did So at the beginning, you said that this is what you did the final project on? So, well, yeah, I, my final project was just looking at this and trying to look at it's like data efficiency. So, okay. like how few? Yeah. So, I mean, labels. Maybe maybe talk a, a bit a bit a bit about that as well. Um, as we as we sort of uh, wrap things up here. Yeah. So, I mean the the crux of this right is if it works, then you should be able to solve in part that size problem that deep learning has right, where you instead of yep. needing millions of labeled training data examples, you might be able to get away with far fewer, and. If you look at some of the graphs in the papers, it's striking the extent to which these models can do this. So they can outperform like a standard ResNet on ImageNet at like fully trained with with all the labels, but they are very robust to a decreasing label percentage. So like the ResNet accuracy falls off precipitously, even if you drop its training data label percentage by like twenty percent. Okay, so maybe just unpack that a little. So what you what you're talking about there is ResNets, which are one kind of convolutional network. You you train them, right. but you train them ma- many times over independently. The same the same network, but you you train it on the same data set many times over. But each time you re- remove some of the like the d- labeled data from the data set. 
So it's just it's just fewer examples, or just you're taking away the labels. No, no. So, so I, what I'm saying is, so what you're just doing here is you're comparing how how does my accuracy change mm. as I give the network less and less training data. So, like you could train one and you just get, straight you up give fewer the full, examples. Yeah. So, like to give it one where you get every label. Then you halve it, and then you could maybe give it twenty five percent, and you train different networks here and just compare what their output accuracies are, and you can do the same with CPC. So you're li- you're literally just like throwing away some of the images in the data set each time, or yeah. are you just removing the labels somehow? I don't. You're just throwing away images. So your n your n just gets smaller. Your number of examples just gets smaller, or or what? So with CPC, obviously, because it can train sort of unsupervised on the unlabeled ones i guess you're not throwing away the images and then for right. the resnet because you know it relies on supervised training then the unlabeled ones would be kind of meaningless uh uh okay i see okay got you so it 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 it, res- it respects the distinction with with how the with how these two different systems operate so you you they they still have access to all the images except the re- regular resnet supervised learning can only use the ones that have labels obviously and so as you remove some of the labels, it just can't use those images at all. And so, whereas the CPC can still make use of them. I mean, I guess another way of doing this is just like, let's say you had, you know, a thousand training images, you could just split that like train and test and you could just change your train test split. So you could just say like 20% are training. That, That I think is probably how you do this. If you so having it. a different test size would probably skew your um your like accuracy scores somehow somewhat. So you'd maybe need to like limit that somehow. But yeah, okay, I I I, I get what you I get what you're saying now. I just wanted to clarify what you meant by as you reduce the label percentage. Okay, yeah. But essentially, what what you're doing is you you're saying, oh, how well do you do when I give you all the information? Really well. Okay, now I'm gonna start taking information away and retraining you each. Like it's a new network every time, right. and you just quantify its performance each time. And as you're removing them the ResNet decreases in performance Terrible, dramatically, sorry. just falls off a cliff. Yeah, it's pretty much. Okay? It's not robust at all, right? I mean, it's a classic example of being data hungry. But CPC trained on unlabeled data and then given these like low label percentages is strikingly good, you know? I mean, I don't want to actually say an actual number now because it's going to be wrong, but I will link to the graph in the actual paper where they look at this and very quickly it is outperforming the ResNet by a, a big, big margin. And that margin is solely due to the fact that it's robust to this decrease in percentage of labeled data. Okay. So it is making use of the data when of the labels when they are there, but when they're not there, it can still use... So no, no, no now, now, now I've been unclear. So, so how you train these things, obviously, right, is so you first do like a pre-training round where you just give it unlabeled data entirely, right? Right. And there it's doing this sort of prediction thing where you're trying to predict the vector beneath it that we spoke about. And once you've done that for a little while, you like as soon as the network converges and you have done this kind of unsupervised training, then you're like, you basically save the weights of that model and that's your pre-trained model. And then what you want to do is on top of that pre-trained model, you just add like a linear classifier and you do right. supervised learning on that with like the desired uh-huh. percentage of, of labels. 
So, which is literally just telling it how to name the things. Essentially, it's just learning our names for the things, right? Exactly. Okay. So that so you're just adding you're adding like a simple network right at the end. Right. That's just a basic classifier, yeah. and just learns to map the uh, what's it the C the CPC networks names for things onto human names. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So that you just got do you. normal gradient descent on at the end, and it's just got labels. So. Basically, what you're comparing is this pre-trained CPC architecture at low label percentages to a ResNet at low label percentages. And what you're seeing is the effect of doing this self-supervised learning, because if it has worked, then you should basically be able to do better accuracy prediction, even when you don't have many labels for your data, because you somehow know more about what images are, even with fewer labeled examples. All right, I see. Okay, so the only thing that's really differing for the CPC is just that final linear classifier at the end. That's that's just getting less training d- data every time. But the rest of the CPC doesn't even notice that you've that you've done anything differently in each of these runs. Yeah, well, it's still it's still it was trained on the same data. It's the same data set just because it never saw the labels anyway. Yeah. So it's only that linear classifier that you're tacking on at the end that's getting less and less labeled data, and so. But be, but because it's already got this really high value representation coming into it, it doesn't need as much, and it's easier to train because it's much smaller than training the whole ResNet. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Got you. So that's really really cool. Yeah, I mean, there's lots to explore here, and it's like really new, especially like the the yeah. the newest stuff. It's a couple of months old, so everyone should allow for some misinterpretations here because I think it's kind of changing underfoot as we go, which is always the danger uh, of talking about something very new mm. uh, besides the obvious yeah, danger. But, of I mean, this whole field the... is, is, <laughs> but yeah, it's just so interesting. And I think it's almost for me, it was like worth talking about, even though my understanding is probably sketchy here because the general idea is so interesting. It's worth propagating. Yeah, exactly. No, it was, I mean, even even just for the fact that you've seeded so many ideas in me that I'm going to be able to practically go and experiment with now in the next two months, it, it, for that alone, I think it's been worth it. Um, and and if that if that generalizes to anyone else listening to this, then I mean that's that's been awesome. So yeah, thanks for like digging into it and sharing what you've learned. And and there's always so much value to be found in learning something from someone who's just learned it themselves. I think we expert opinions are great. Um, and experts have a way of seeing things from different vantage points and connecting disparate ideas. But I think we tend to undervalue how useful it is to learn something from someone who's just learned it too. Well, yeah, I definitely refined a few things in this conversation where I realized, like, oh, that's why you do that, you know. So I, I do yeah. enjoy trying to hash it all out. So as long as everyone's willing to accept me learning in real time, then that's all good. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. Shall we leave it there? I think let's leave it there. That's that's been a, a really good one, and I learned a lot. Uh, I think just just speaking about these things combines ideas and crystallizes uh, previously held ones in a number of useful ways. So I've I've really enjoyed the conversation. So yeah, thanks for bringing in the new subject matter, and it's been a great chat as usual. Thank you very much, FRB. Great. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the bit of a tangent podcast we certainly appreciate the continued support and listenership that we've received 
And if you enjoyed that episode, please do consider sharing it with just a single friend you think might also enjoy it. That is genuinely the best way for a podcast to grow organically. If you have comments, please tweet us. The podcast is at PodTangent, or you can follow us on Instagram also at PodTangent. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here soon.